The Babylonian exile begins, and Ezekiel teaches us about God's glory, individual responsibility, and 600 years before Christ, God teaches Israel a valuable lesson about how the dead will walk in newness of life. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. This week's lesson, The Shepherds of Israel, number 43. And our question, our listener question this time comes from Kendra in Draper. She, she asks about something I said in my last lesson when I talked about how one way to interpret the, the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, is thou shalt not carry the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And I mentioned at that time that is the only commandment of the Ten Commandments for which God says, your sin will not be forgotten. In other words, there is no forgiveness. So Kendra asks, how can you say that the there will be no forgiveness in light of the fact that Alma the Younger and Saul, renamed Paul, became great prophets after having led many people astray? What a wonderful question. And uh, so I, I, I wanted to clarify again what it means to, to take or to carry the name of the Lord in vain. So Alma did become a prophet and in the Alma the Younger. And Alma the Elder, actually the same thing. They both lived similar lives where they lived lives of wickedness and presumably led people astray. Now let's understand what carrying the name of the Lord in vain actually means. It means presenting yourself as the prophets of the time of Jeremiah did as being called of God and carrying his word, but then carrying your own word instead. And, bring, and using it to aggrandize yourself or to serve your own ends. And this isn't what Alma the Younger did. In fact, Alma the Elder would be in much more danger of condemnation of this than his son would because he was one of the wicked priests. So he actually did carry the name of God in vain. So when I say that, uh, that, that God would not forgive, I, I think that probably the forgiveness is quite a bit more difficult. But Alma the Elder obviously found forgiveness for that. And Saul, same thing. Saul was, um, he was doing what he thought was right. And I think the, the qualification for not being forgiven is somebody that acts in the name of God and knows that what they're doing is wrong and serving only themselves. Uh, and I mean, we could find examples even in today's world. But I don't know that Alma the Younger qualifies because he, he while he knew he was wicked, he wasn't claiming to be an ecclesiastical leader. And Saul, he thought he was doing what was righteous. But wonderful question. I hope that answer is right. That's the clo- that's my personal opinion, uh, and it's a guess. So take it for what it's worth. As always, if you'd like to have your question answered on the program, please email me at gt at gospeltoctrin.com. Well, let's dive into Lesson 43, The Shepherds of Israel. And the chapters that we're assigned for this week are chapters 18, 34, and 37 of Ezekiel. And in typical fashion, I've added a few more of my own. Uh, we'll be covering also chapters 1 through 3, chapter 14, 33, and 36. For those of you reading along, and I hope there are some of you, and maybe some of, maybe most of you are just listening to me while you drive, which is wonderful as well. Now, the beginning of the story of Ezekiel uh, is sort of like the beginning of the story of Jeremiah, Lehi, Isaiah, 
many other prophets who have what's called a throne theophany. They they have a vision of God on his throne. And, and in the case of Ezekiel, uh, there's a little bit of story that happens before the, before the book begins that we have to guess at. So Ezekiel says uh, he's in the 30th year. We don't know the 30th year of what, but a lot of, most people presume this is his 30th year of life. And in fact, the legend, there's, there are legends and, and hypotheses that Ezekiel was, was carried away captive from Judah in 598 BC, which is uh, when, around the time when King Joachim was captured by Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon. And so five years later is when Ezekiel says he's in his 30th year. And if it was his 30th year, this, is, this would have been when he was eligible. We find, we find out also that he is one of the Kohenim, or the, the priests of the temple in Jerusalem. So he's carried away from what would have been a lifetime of serving God and of some status in Jerusalem as well. And obviously Ezekiel, unlike many of the priests, some of the priests and most of the people in Jerusalem, was a righteous man. And so he would have he would have loved to serve God in the temple his whole life. He he'd been training for it, looking forward to it from the time he was born. And instead, he spent 5 years in Babylon. So he's he's frustrated and upset on this in this time when he's turning 30 years old when he would have been installed in the temple and all and he's and, and instead he's in a refugee camp in Babylon, sitting beside this Chibar River and in the distance all of a sudden he has a vision. And in the vision he sees the the glory of God approaching. And it's very similar to other visions, except instead of being taken to the temple and seeing God's glory surrounding his throne in the temple or over the Ark of the Covenant, he sees, he sees God's glory approaching him while he sits in Babylon. And we'll get, we'll get to why this is important uh, when we talk about chapter 11. But he, he has a vision of four wondrous creatures and the the descriptions in the Old Testament of uh, heavenly angels are often very symbolic. Um, what we would think of in our theology as angels would be either would be faithful spirits that serve God either before they are sent to the earth or after they've completed their mortal ministry. And God glorifies them and gives them uh, power and authority and a mission to fulfill on earth. And... Uh, the the way that the Old Testament prophets visualize them is often not as not in human form. They'll have human form. In fact, these these angels or these creatures they had human hands, but then they had they each had two sets of wings, and they appeared to be supporting the four corners of a throne above them. And they each had four faces, and they they had a, they each had a wheel underneath them, and the wheel appeared to have another wheel within it that could turn in any direction without moving. And so there's a lot of description, a lot of vivid description given to this vision. But And, and part of the interesting thing about reading it, and, and one reason why it's fun to read it in different translations, is you realize sometimes as we read the, the Old Testament, we think this guy's describing it as if it were pretty ordinary. I don't, I don't know enough about the way that King James-era English worked to know whether he's describing something that appeared weird to him or whether it appeared normal. And if you read a more modern translation, you can realize, okay, Ezekiel was really, really amazed by what he was seeing and 
so so amazed that he kept pointing out the strange details and the strange and wondrous appearance of these of these cherubim or these angels. In any case, what the angels are supporting is a throne platform is a what's called a firmament in our translation, and then the the glory of God above that. And and uh, I wanted to talk. I wanted to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about the word glory in the Old Testament. Now, the word glory uh, is in Hebrew is kavod, and this is a word that means heaviness. It means, uh, well, it's one of the one of the more literal translations is heaviness or weight. And the way to think about glory when you when you read about God's glory or the glory of a man or a person in the living in the world, you you can think about all of the works that they have amassed and all of the wealth and all of the status and the reputation that they've amassed over the course of a lifetime and their family. So that's why at the beginning of the book of Job, it talks about all the flocks that he had and all the family that he had and the homes that he had and the fact that everyone knew he was a righteous man. And, and at various points in the book of Job, he'll say, it used to be that when I opened my mouth, everyone would stop talking and listen to me. And now even my servants say that, what a, that I stink, right? And my wife won't come near me because my skin is falling off my bones. And what he was describing when he, when he talked about those things was the loss of all of his kavod, his, his status, his wealth, his family, everything had disappeared. And they didn't think of such things necessarily as materialistic the way that we do. They thought of it as part of a person's kavod. And therefore, when they thought about God, they recognized rightly that everything in heaven and earth belongs to God's glory. Every, every person who worships God, the things that we think about God, the God's status among the other gods, all of those things are elements of God's kavod. And this is what, so this is the, this is the context, this is the connotation of the word when used by one of the prophets of the Old Testament. And so when Ezekiel says in this vision, I saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. He isn't just saying that I saw a being of great whiteness and glory and it appeared like there was light coming out of it. What he was saying is I, I was receiving communication from this being that was more than just a visual process. It was, it was communicating to me all of the glory of God and and he knew in that moment that he was a prophet. And over the course of the next couple of chapters, he receives a calling and more more visions as well. Uh, so in chapter 2, without necessarily going into a lot of detail, what Yahweh tells Ezekiel is, you're going to be called as my prophet and you're going to be my mouthpiece. And so just like Jeremiah, Ezekiel is asked to eat a scroll. And the scroll is containing God's words. And in fact, he sees many terrible things in this scroll, but when he eats it, the scroll is in his mouth, sweet like honey. And so he it's very, very satisfying for him to eat this scroll, but then God tells him, whenever you talk, you're going to say, thus saith Yahweh, and people will know that a prophet has been among them. Now, they may not listen, and they may listen, but either way, they'll know that you came from me, and I'm calling you to speak for me for the rest of your life. And also like Jeremiah, Ezekiel was told, don't be afraid of other people. When you're in front of them, they will appear imposing, and, I, and I'm going to give you a lot of things to say that, that no one's going to like. And I, I'm calling upon you to say those things no matter what. And if you don't say them, then in chapter 3, God gives him some penalties. 
um, and he talks about what it means to be a watchman. He says, Ezekiel, I'm calling you to be a watchman. And what that means is you're going to see dangers coming from far away that no one else can see. And you are given the responsibility of warning those within the walls that you're standing on top of. And therefore, if you don't warn someone, it doesn't matter what they do. If, a, if there's a wicked man inside the wall and you don't run in and warn everyone, then that wicked man's sins, whether or not he would have repented, they're all on you. And when there's a righteous man inside the wall, if he later turns to wickedness, that sin is also on you. And this chapter sort of clearly spells out what we also could have assumed in many other passages of Scripture. And the one I would have read most recently would be uh, the the prophet Jacob in Second uh, Nephi, he would have he said, "You will know in the last day that my blood will not stain your your blood will not come upon my clothing, and I have washed I've cleaned your blood from my garments." So God obviously had some similar discussion with Jacob and said, "If you don't pass along this word that I'm giving you, then everyone's blood will stain your garments at the last day." So that is sort of the same imagery we hear throughout the Book of Mormon and also elsewhere in the Bible. But this is the only place that I know of where we we see it spelled out exactly what those penalties are. So God is very serious with this prophet and saying, if you fail in any respect to pass along all these difficult things I'm going to say to you that are going to make you wildly unpopular, then the penalties and the consequences for you are going to be extremely severe. It, it, you're, you're going to be taking upon yourself the wickedness of the worst person that you could have talked to. And, and so Ezekiel is very zealous in getting this word out because he knows exactly how important it is. Now in chapters, uh, I'll briefly touch on what happens in chapters 4 and 5. Ezekiel is given some what are called uh, sign messages or symbolic messages from God. And it amounts to what we would think of as sort of viral messages, viral street theater, where um, one of the messages is Ezekiel prepares a little miniature version of the town of Israel, and God tells him how to construct this little city of, uh, or sorry, of uh, the city of Jerusalem. And God tells him how to construct this, and then he says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to lie on one side of your body for 390 days, representing the penalties given to the kingdom of Ephraim in Israel, and then you're going to lie on the other side of your body for 40 days, and I'm going to bind you with cords. God tells Ezekiel that he's going to bind him, whether that means Ezekiel had to arrange it himself or he was miraculously bound, we don't know. And he was going to eat terrible food that was cooked over dung, and he told him how to make this uh, this particular bread, and and then God said, this is a symbol of what everyone's going to go through when Jerusalem is besieged by Babylon. And Ezekiel had to do it. And so you, you recall elsewhere in the scriptures, um, Jeremiah just recently was commanded to have no children as a symbol to Israel that they would very soon be in a day when people would be glad they had no children. And Hosea was commanded to marry a prostitute. Isaiah was commanded to name his children according to uh, what would happen to them if they disobeyed. And so the prophets didn't get, didn't get off very easily uh, in the days of the kingdom of Judah, and Ezekiel is no, no exception. So here he is, he has to lie on one side for over a year of his life and eat this terrible food, this, this food that would have defiled him ritually as well as probably tasted awful, and, 
and you can imagine the the word how the word got around right people would have seen this guy and they would have said have you heard about the guy who he's always over there on one side of the city and he's lying on his side and he keeps talking about how Jerusalem's going to be destroyed so god is actually showing himself to be a very brilliant guerrilla marketer right here because he he is understanding exactly what kind of message is going to to get the people of the exiled nation of Judah talking about what the prophet is saying. And so Isaiah or Ezekiel doesn't come up with these ideas himself. And God gives him a few more ideas. And he says, you've got to do these things like you've got to cut off all your hair and you're going to burn one third of it. You're going to scatter one third of it with a sword. And then you're going to throw the last third of it to the winds. And then whatever's left as in the little bundle that you created, I'm going to grow it all back from that interesting things saying that one-third of Judah would be destroyed by by pestilence, one-third by the sword immediately, and then one-third would be scattered and killed later. So Ezekiel is more than just a prophet. He's also an actor or a, you might say a showman. He is called to be somebody who understands how to create a spectacle and how to draw a crowd and how to get people talking and interested in what he has to say. And as the book progresses, there are several instances in which he's meeting with the elders of, of Judah, the elders of Israel. Israel now is no longer the name of a kingdom. Israel now is the name of the descendants of Jacob. Again, as we, as we would know it today, the house of Israel. It's no longer the kingdom of Israel because neither kingdom exists anymore. Or at least the kingdom of Israel doesn't exist anymore. And very shortly, neither will the kingdom of Judah. Keep in mind, there were three instances of exile from Judah. The first one was in 605 BC, and that was when Daniel was taken. Daniel was uh, a few years younger, at least, than Ezekiel. That was when Daniel was taken captive, and then Ezekiel was either taken captive in 605 BC or in 598 BC. And then finally, uh, and obviously in between those two was when Lehi left Jerusalem. And then finally in 587 or 586 BC, that's when Babylon finally got tired of all the resistance they'd been getting for the last 20 years from Judah, and they marched in and completely destroyed everything and carried everyone away. And early in Ezekiel's ministry, his job is to tell Israel, Israel is still thinking, somehow we can get back to Jerusalem. We can uh, escape from here, or God's going to free us, and we'll get back there and rebuild what we had. Obviously, their lives have been completely upended, and they're thinking, some, and they're living as refugees, they're living as slaves, their life is horrible, they're captives in a foreign country. And Ezekiel's job is to tell them, number one, you, if you remember last week, we talked about Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, and he said, the, the prosperity of Babylon is your prosperity. You, you should pray for the country you're in because you're going to be there a while. In fact, you should build buildings and plant trees because you're not coming back anytime soon. And that's Ezekiel's same job, which is to get them to accept they are now living in exile. And it's an interesting uh, time to find the scripture that we find in, in one of our chapters this, this week, which is chapter 18. You remember this was, a, this was a metaphor that Jeremiah used as well, which is no longer will it need to be said that the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And we discussed what that meant. It, it was an allusion to the, to the pronouncement by God that I visit the sins of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And it's an interesting time for God to be saying, no longer will it need to be said that parents eat 
sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge when it's true of everyone in exile. It is their ancestors' wickedness that has led them to be carried away exiles in Babylon. For 400 years and more, God put up with the wickedness of Israel living in the promised land, living in uh, the land of Canaan, and refusing to keep the covenants that they'd made and refusing to be faithful to Yahweh. And therefore, and God had been prophesying and sending prophets to warn the people for all this time, and no one had listened. And now, Ezekiel, totally righteous man, is bearing the brunt of this. And he is also the one who's called upon by God to reveal the fact or the idea that it's no longer, it no longer needs to be said that those who have not committed the sin will need to pay the price for the sin. And yet here they are paying the price for the sin. So what does that mean? This is a, this is a question you can think about. I'm, I'm going to give you one answer, but there are probably several answers. So chapter 18 goes on to talk about how it, God does not want anyone to die because of sin. And when God talks about he shall die or he shall live in this chapter, what he means is he shall be in my presence, he shall, he shall remain within my approval or he shall be separated from me, right? He's talking about death in a spiritual sense. And he says, if a wicked man repents, he shall live. And if a righteous man then turns to sin, he, he won't live because of his earlier righteousness, he will die because he's living in sin and he refuses to repent. So the, the wicked man who stays in sin, he will die. The wicked man who repents and the righteous man who remains in righteousness, they will live. And the point that God is trying to make is you have to take on responsibility for your own salvation and it doesn't matter what anyone else has done. So the idea isn't that you can't, as God expressed at Mount Sinai, you might be bearing the brunt or you might be suffering the consequences of things that are the results of other people's choices. And yet, you will not die, you will not live because of their choices. You will live or die because you either turn to God and humble yourself or you will die because you don't. It seems like such a simple and even trivial idea that none of us need to actually read in the scriptures because when we think about God, we think about somebody who's always fair. And yet, what do we do in our own lives? As soon as somebody else does something to harm us, we complain about how we're the victims of that person's actions rather than take responsibility for what are our choices. It's almost universal that we try to blame other people for the bad situations in which we find ourselves. And by find ourselves, I mean in which we lead ourselves, the bad situations that we choose for ourselves. And so we don't have to look too far to find examples of this kind of thinking in our own life where uh, we think, gosh, somebody else ate sour grapes and I'm the one who's over here with my teeth set on edge. But, and God is saying that that kind of thinking doesn't fly with me. In my opinion, that's how I read chapter 18. I skipped ahead a little bit because uh, those two ideas were tied together. But the next part is what's going on in Jerusalem during this time of Ezekiel's prophetic calling. So Ezekiel gets what you, he's sitting among the, the leaders of Judah, of exiled Judah. And all of a sudden he feels like the Spirit of God grabs him and pulls him straight up into the air and he's carried away to Jerusalem. And he has this vision of the temple, of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. And he walks through it and he sees the wickedness that's happening outside. He sees an an idol set up in the courtyard. And then he travels through 
what feels like a secret passage inside the temple, and he sees all the secret rooms inside of the homes of all of these priests, and the fact that they are worshiping idols whenever, they, whenever they're not in the temple pretending to worship God. And then he sees the wickedness that is prevailing in the entire nation of Judah, and then he sees, he goes back to the temple, and he sees there's actual idolatry going on in the very spot, and right out in the courtyard, there are women weeping for the god Tammuz, right? And so he sees all of this this terrible defilement, idolatry, wickedness. And then he looks up and he sees this same throne that we mentioned earlier. The the throne, the, he, first he's, when he enters the temple, he sees God, the, the Shekinah, or the presence of God, the glory of God, hanging out above where it should be, in the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. And then after he sees all this wickedness, he sees this mobile throne of God, the one that's carried on the backs of four cherubim with all the wheels attached and the four faces and the terrible visage and the, and the, and the glory that looks like uh, polished bronze and polished metal and, and all of these words that describe light and lightning and fierceness. And this throne is airborne. It's departing to the east. And he sees that now God's presence has left the temple. There is another example we have of this kind of uh, event, and that is at the crucifixion of Christ. You might remember that the people were remarked upon to say there was a great storm arose, and and some people even said the God of nature suffers. And uh, what would happen in the temple at that moment, but that the, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, symbolically showing that God's Shekinah, God's presence, had departed from the temple. The temple was no longer an authoritative place for the Jews to perform sacrifice, to be forgiven of their sins. Any of the ordinances that had been decreed by God that should be performed there were no longer valid. And none of the none of the callings, none of the heavenly approval that would have attended those earlier ordinances, none of that was still valid and, and working in the temple. And this is a similar event. God has left the building, and he is now, we're going to talk a little bit about what it means, but God is on his way to Babylon, and it was, it was God giving Ezekiel a prequel, if you will. The, the sequel was chapter one, God's, or Ezekiel sees God's kavod, God's glory, approaching across the plain on the other side of this river where he's living with the refugees, and he sees that God has come to dwell in Babylon. And then in chapter 11, he sees when it departed. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea because it reminded me of a couple of scriptures. The first one is in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the idea that God's chosen, God's the, this Davidic king, the Messiah, would be called God with us, right? This, this idea that God will be with us is was new in in Isaiah and the other scripture is in 1st Nephi chapter 12 when Nephi goes to inquire of the Lord about his father's vision of the tree of life and he asks what is the what does the fruit mean and we all know the interpretation of the fruit is the love of God however the first answer that Nephi gets is do you know the meaning of the condescension of God and he says you know, I, I know that there are many, many truths. I know that he loves his people, but I don't know the meaning of all things. 
And then the, the angel shows him that the, how much Christ will suffer, right? And then he tells him the, name, the meaning of the fruit is the love of God. Meaning before Nephi could understand the love of God, he had to understand the condescension of God. And the way I read this passage in Ezekiel is that God could no longer live in the temple. They had rejected him. And they, they, had, they had assumed because he was the true God and this was his true temple that nothing they could do would ever change that. And to God, that temple was just a building. It was a building because it was the product of uh, consecration and sacrifice. It was holy to him, holier than a lot of places, but it didn't have any more meaning than they were willing to give to it. And so when the time came, he had to leave. But instead of leaving his people alone, instead of abandoning them, Isaiah had promised God will be with us. And God's presence, God's kavod, God's shekinah and his glory went into Babylon with the exiles. And as Nephi saw, God doesn't stay up in heaven. We think of God, especially the God of the Old Testament. We think of him as this distant God who doesn't care, who his, we better, we better get with the program and repent of our sins or else we're going to a fiery place and we're going to suffer. And what, if, if you actually spend time reading the Old Testament and discovering how merciful God was to, and how long-suffering he was toward the Israelites, you'll realize he forgave them so many times he was looking for every excuse he could to forgive them and to change them. We'll talk more in this lesson about what he, how, he, how hard he was working to do just that and what promises he's making along those very lines. But also, we learn from uh, Nephi, who is, by the way, if Lehi is a contemporary of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, then so is Nephi, and he's also a contemporary of Daniel. And we'll talk about what that means. They had some parallel prophecies and some parallel teachings, and there are some interesting things for us to learn there. But in this particular case, we see that God is willing to depart from the temple, the habitation that he's had for so long, and he's willing to be an exile too. He's willing to be a refugee as well with the exiles in Babylon. For me, and this is a, an opinion or a, an insight that I've come to recently, um, and, I'm, and I don't advance this as doctrine, but I, I have come to believe more and more that the condescension of God does not mean that God, and the, and the idea of an infinite atonement does not mean that Christ suffered his atonement and paid for everyone's sins, and though it was an infinite atonement, he was able to complete it, and then he was done. The, what I'm realizing and what I, what I believe now is true, and this is a question you can ask yourself whether you believe it too, is God lives outside, if God lives outside of time, which I believe that he does, wouldn't it also be true that what he knows today, what he knows tomorrow are the same things he knew yesterday, what he feels today are the same things he felt yesterday. And so, and Jesus Christ said, the son can do nothing save what he, he seeth the father do. And what I believe is that Jesus suffered for our sins and is constantly feeling all of our pain. And that God himself also is constantly feeling all of our pain. They feel everything. In fact, they feel it even more keenly than we do because we numb ourselves and hide ourselves from so much of what we should be feeling in life. And we have to learn how to turn to God and humble ourselves and, and get close to what we're feeling so that God can heal us. 
I believe that God is willing. This is part of what being God is, is God is willing to feel all of it. And God is willing to constantly suffer with us. That is, that is the kind of savior that Jesus was. That, that was the big surprise when Jesus came to earth. It wasn't that he wasn't the, the glorious Davidic king. He didn't have the kavod that everyone was expecting. Instead, what he did was he announced God's kingdom, and then he allowed the Jews of, of Jerusalem to kill him. And instead of saying, I'm going to get you out of your suffering, what Jesus said was, I'm going to jump in there with you. A totally, it, it flipped the entire idea of what everyone thought a Messiah was on its head. And this, this idea is presaged here in, the, here in the book of Ezekiel. Instead of saying, I'm going to save you from the necessity of being exiled, God is saying, I'm willing to go into exile with you. I'm willing to suffer with you. I feel all of your pains and I'm constantly feeling them. And I know exactly how much it should hurt. And that's what I'm feeling instead of how much you're willing to allow yourselves to hurt. That to me is so comforting. It, it allows me to picture God right next to me through everything that I'm suffering. Not that he paid the price 2000 years ago, but that he is constantly feeling it. When I suffer, he suffers because I'm his child, because he knows what I'm feeling and he's willing to allow himself to feel it too. That's what is meant by the condescension of God. That is the vision that Nephi saw. And that is why the fruit of the tree of life was so sweet. Well, this idea is, at least for me, alluded to by the idea that the throne of God didn't depart and go into heaven. It, it departed and went where the people of God were most faithful, which was this little bank of a river hundreds of miles away, a two-month journey away that most of these people would never make again. They would never return from. And God was willing to go into exile with them. Now, chapter 14, I wanted to add into the mix for a couple of scriptures. And one of them comes right at the beginning. Ezekiel describes one of the, I'll just read for a, a few verses. Start in verse 1. Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? In other words, somebody has come to pretend that he's going to listen to the prophet. He's going to come ask a question, but then he's going to do what he wants. In verse 4, Therefore speak unto them, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols, that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are all estranged from me through their idols. Now, if you don't think idolatry is something that can exist without actual idols, so often we read the stories of the Old Testament, we think, well, that's pretty easy to avoid having graven idols that we worship that hasn't been around forever. So I don't know why we keep talking about this. Here is a scriptural proof that that isn't what God means. He's talking about the multiplicity or the multitude of idols in this man's heart. So what kind of idols does this man have in his heart? He is uh, somebody who is outwardly, he's coming to talk to the prophet about a problem. He's asking advice and he's asking for God's word. And yet God is saying, this guy isn't going to listen. He's not going to humble himself. And that's the real key. Do you remember that when Isaiah found himself in God's presence and he was called to be a prophet, 
The first thing he said was, I am not worthy of this. I will surely die. I'm not purified to be here, and I'm not worried to behold this much glory. And God said, I will purify you. And here's a man who's not humbling himself. We don't know exactly why, but he hasn't been willing to, to make that statement that I, whatever God asked me to do, I'm going to do it, and I'm still not worthy of his glory. I'm only forgiven because of God's mercy, right? That is the proper attitude, and that is the attitude that allows God to purify us, that allowed God to purify Isaiah. And without that attitude, what we're doing is we're holding on to this multitude of idols in our heart. I, I, I just love this, the first few verses there in Ezekiel chapter 14. And one other thing I wanted to uh, to mention in this chapter is is a couple of passages where it talks about how wicked Jerusalem is and the fact that it's going to be destroyed and and it, there's no way around it. And the interesting part for me is that God said, though, though, though these three men, Job, and he mentions three prophets, Job, Daniel, and Noah, and he says, even though they begged me all day long, they they could only save themselves, no matter how righteous they are, the most righteous people that you could think of these legendary prophets, they could only save themselves. Even their sons and daughters would still be killed. And I would spare them, but no one else. That's how wicked the land of Judah is. Now, it's, it's, that's, that part of it is sort of interesting, but the interesting thing is Ezekiel, at, by this time, has only been in Babylon for maybe 15 years or so. And already Daniel is a legendary righteous man. Now, there is a controversy about whether Ezekiel is talking about the Daniel of the Old Testament that we know or not. Uh, But let's assume for a moment that he is. Um, Daniel is legendary as being somebody who is a revealer of secrets. And if you remember the story of Daniel explaining to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And then he says, all right, any of the wise men who can come to me and tell me my dream and then tell me the interpretation, uh, then I will reward them. Otherwise, I'm going to kill you all. And Daniel was able to do it. And that's how Daniel got the reputation as someone who revealed secrets and with a man of great wisdom from God. And we could see now from this, uh, this revelation of Ezekiel, that already, even though Daniel was younger than Ezekiel, he's already a legendary figure among the exiles in Babylon. Another side note about these three prophets is that they're all men who were faithful to the God of Israel, faithful to Yahweh, and yet none of them were Israelites. None of them lived in Canaan, in the promised land. Noah and Job. Job is sort of a legendary figure. We don't know exactly where he lived. And Noah was alive in the days before the the land had its names that they came to know later. So we don't know where he lived. And Daniel is in exile. So that gives us the additional implication that the the people who are outside of this exile are the wrong people to ask for forgiveness. Uh, it's another idea that comes from this. So the upshot as I read this is that the only option for Ezekiel and those people listening to his prophecies is to feel very helpless because they're not the right people. They don't have any standing to even pray about Israel being forgiven. And uh, that's that's an unfortunate spot and a difficult spot to be in. Okay, now let's skip up into the 30s, and this is sort of the, po- the point of the, the lesson as we find it in the manual, is to cover these chapters. But before we get to chapter 34, which is the shepherds of Israel, uh, we'll talk about chapter 33. Now, in this chapter, God again reminds Ezekiel that he's a watchman. He's a watchman on a tower. And God charges Ezekiel to spread this teaching that he gave him earlier. 
And he told him, Ezekiel, you're going to be a prophet, and you're going to bring upon you the sins of anyone that you don't warn. And now he's telling Ezekiel, here's the way that you're going to communicate the same idea to everyone who might listen to you. And you're going to call them watchmen. You're going to tell them how they're watchmen on a wall. And anybody who the watchman does not warn, that he could have warned, if the enemy invades, then that person's blood is on the watchman's hand. So then Ezekiel is charged to go and tell everyone about how they are all shirking their duties as watchmen, spiritual watchmen over Israel. And God again repeats what he said in chapter 18. He says uh, in verse 12 of chapter 33, God tells Ezekiel, Therefore, thou son of man, say unto the children of thy people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness. Neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sinneth. So in other words, it's the decisions that you make that matter, not what you used to do. And that's why we need these watchmen. We need watchmen to continually be reminding people of the changes that they need to make in order to avoid living, in order to live and not die, to avoid dying because of their sins. This is the immediate precedent. It, it flows right into chapter 34. This is a chapter, if you've ever been in uh, an elders quorum, especially in the days of home teaching, you know extremely well because every, at least once or twice a year, this chapter would be used as a lesson about home teaching. And while that is a, I, I guess I could say that is a valid interpretation of what this, this chapter means. It is an interpretation that is secondary to what the context of this chapter is actually saying to us. Now, the, the main idea of this chapter is that God is going to take over because earthly men are not worthy enough. We're not diligent enough. We aren't willing enough to be his shepherds. And therefore, God is going to be our shepherd. Now, he makes reference in chapter 34, he makes reference to an earlier chapter, which is chapter 11. Chapter 11 is when God's presence, his glory, his throne departed from the temple, departed from all Jerusalem and all of Judah. And at that time, in verse 19 of chapter 11, God says, Israel has a heart of stone. Their heart is so hardened that I can't get through to them, and therefore they won't listen to me. I have to leave. And here in verse, in chapter 34, Yahweh begins to set the stage for the fact that Israel won't always have a hard heart because God is going to be merciful, and he's going to lead the, these flocks by the hand. I will feed them, in verse 14, as he says, I will feed them in a good pasture, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. In verse 15, I will feed my flock, I will cause them to lie down, I will seek that which was lost, I will bring again that which was driven away, I will bind up that which was broken. So he talks about what kind of shepherd he's going to be instead of these shepherds. Now you'll recall the language of Jeremiah was similar. Because of the wickedness of these shepherds of Israel, because of the fact that they're feeding themselves, they're, they're in some way preying upon the flock. So a shepherd would obviously use his, use his flocks, occasionally would butcher a sheep to eat for meat, right? That, that's the whole point of raising sheep. But the point of uh, these shepherds is they don't care about the sheep at all and they don't protect them, they just eat them. So they don't give the, she the sheep any of the good things that sheep normally would get, and yet they still get eaten by the shepherds. Well, God is saying, I'm not, gonna, I, I'm not the kind of shepherd that eats sheep. I'm the kind of shepherd that cares for sheep. 
and brings them up in peace and righteousness and lets them rest and always protects them. And in fact, I'm willing to give my life for them. Now, this idea first came around in the Psalms, but it was developed of God as the shepherd. It was developed by Isaiah and by Hosea and also by Jeremiah. And this is one of the reasons why it was so offensive to the Jews when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. It's because he was using language that in the Old Testament was reserved for Yahweh. Yahweh was saying, I am your shepherd. And David said, Yahweh is my shepherd. He, lead, he leadeth me behind, beside the green pastures. And then Jesus starts saying, I am the good shepherd. Behold, I know my sheep. I give my life for the sheep. These are all things that in the Old Testament, Yahweh told the prophets about himself. And right in between chapters 33 and 34, Ezekiel gets word. Somebody shows up, uh, one of the, a new refugee from Jerusalem. And he gives him the word. It's, it's 586 BC or whenever the, the siege was finally brought to a conclusion. He gets word that Jerusalem has, has been destroyed. And so the final part of this three-part conquering of, of Jerusalem has been carried out. And that is, the, that is the context where it begins here, which is him saying to the exiles, look, now we're all we have is each other. And look what you guys are doing. You're preying upon each other. So in that context, yes, it is very appropriate for us to layer on top of this, the layer of home teaching, visiting teaching, and now ministering, which is we all we have is each other. We have to take care of each other. But the Old Testament context also included, look, I, I know that you can't count on each other because you're still too wicked. And therefore, I'm going to take over. And um, what, when I said that this language reminds us of Jeremiah, what I meant was Jeremiah had a chapter where he talks about the prophets doing the same thing. In the book of Jeremiah, it was the prophets. And God said, therefore, I am against the prophets. And in here in chapter 34 of Ezekiel, God says, therefore, I am against the shepherds. And this, the same idea as we talked about in the question at the beginning of the program, which was, if you, take, if you take the name of God in vain upon yourself, meaning if you carry the name of God in vain, it's something that's very difficult to be forgiven for because not only have you uh, destroyed the committed the wickedness that you committed, but you've also destroyed the faith of those whom you've taken advantage of. And that's why Ezekiel is so serious about warning the Israelites away from the sin, the sin of being a watchman, a called shepherd, over over the fold of God, over the over God's flocks, over God's sheep, and failing to do that and, and carrying that name in vain. Uh, what a terrible consequence that carries with it, because all the sins that might you might have prevented come upon you, and you you have no idea what someone else's sins are. All you know is that you were called to bring them to repentance, and if you don't do it, wow, that that would be very awful. I wanted to mention one more scripture in chapter thirty-three. And that's 33, chapter 16. God talks about the, the sins of someone who repents. And he says, his wickedness shall not be mentioned anymore to him. And I, I've just been thinking uh, of, over the last couple of weeks, we had the question in one of my Ward Sunday School classes was, um, can God forget your sins? Because in elsewhere in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah and other places, it says, I, the Lord, will remember their sins no more. And uh, can God really, does God really forget your sins? I've been thinking a lot about that because I don't think God forgets anything, and yet he's promised to forget our sins. Here's, a, here's an indication to me of one possible meaning. His wickedness shall not be mentioned anymore to him. Um, 
my, my own personal insight that I had this week, and I don't know whether it's it accurately reflects what God does, but it's something interesting to think about, which is God doesn't forget our actions, but we he's promised to forget our sins, but we know he can't forget any events. And we had in my uh, state conference recently, we had a man give a talk where he talked about his addiction to alcohol and all of the terrible things he'd done. And from the from the moment he started talking, your heart went out to this man because he was so humble. He talked about how he had uh, stolen and li- stolen from and lied to his daughter and the ways in which he'd hurt her and, and the difficult process of forgiveness that it took her. And you, the whole time you're just, you're just feeling for this man, right? And as I, as I pondered this question, how could God forget our sins? I thought about how these sins that this man committed were indeed terrible, but nobody listening thought they were sins. He didn't have any more shame connected to them. He had left them totally behind and, been for, and repented and been forgiven. He'd sought uh, recompense and he'd, he'd sought to make restitution to anyone he'd hurt. And therefore, he could speak about it openly and everyone could feel empathy for him. And therefore, those things that he'd done were no longer remembered as sins. Now, God knows what this man did, and yet he's remembered his sins no more. One interesting insight that I had, I don't know whether it's true, but I think it's, uh, it's worth considering, it's worth pondering. Well, I want to talk about uh, chapter 36 before we talk about chapter 37. Chapter 36 is where God starts to promise that Israel will one day return to the promised land. And God says to them, I'm going to restore you all these mountains that everyone, all the surrounding nations have mocked you and said, oh, look at what, look at the desolation that God has brought upon you. Uh, Because of their mockery, I'm going to bring you back into their land and they'll see. And that day they'll know that I am the Lord. And then he gets to verse 25. He talks about how not only is he going to change the land, he's going to bring everyone back, but he's going to change the people. We've talked about this before. In, in uh, Ezekiel 36, 25, God says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Now, this, this, the way this verse is translated is a little bit, um, is perhaps not 100% accurate because it isn't God, as we know, God has given us our agency. It isn't God that causes us to do these things. What God is saying here is he's going to create circumstances where we can do them. And so many things we read in the Old Testament, we think, wow, won't it be neat in the day that God brings that prophecy to come to pass? And here's one that we get to bring to come to pass. It, and I, I would encourage you to read uh, chapter Ezekiel 36 from verse 25 to the end because it talks about all the promises, but it also talks about all the choices that we might make, that we could make today. God is going to take a stony heart out of our flesh and put in a heart of flesh. In other words, we're going to feel all of those things that God wants us to feel. We're going to feel the closeness with him again. He's going to put his spirit within us. All that means is that he's going to bring about circumstances that allow us to choose him if we want to. And he is predicting that that will happen. Now, do we want to be part of those people that do that? 
How does God bring about the New Jerusalem, by the way? It's a very interesting question. The New Jerusalem is made up of this kind of person. The New Jerusalem doesn't happen magically. God doesn't have it sitting in heaven. Now, he does have, you know, we talk about the city of Enoch or whatever, but God doesn't have the New Jerusalem sitting in heaven. The New Jerusalem is created by people on the earth being worthy to live in it. And then bit by bit, it evolves by people creating flesh hearts out of their stony hearts, softening their hearts to the word of God and allowing the spirit to come in. This is the new thing that God said he would do. Remember in Isaiah chapter 43, he said, people are no longer going to look at the past. And in Jeremiah, he said the same thing. They're no longer going to talk about the Exodus as the miracle. They're going to talk about this miracle I do in creating the new Jerusalem. But guess what? To create that miracle, God is going to have to have the help of a lot of people softening their hearts and becoming people, the citizens of New Jerusalem. And that we can do right now today. And in fact, we are doing it right now today. Hopefully, you and I are part of it. But even if we're not, it is happening. And we can choose whether to be part of it or not. Now, to conclude this lesson, we'll talk about chapter 37, which is Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. And this is fascinating. He walks across this Valley of Dry Bones. And then what follows is, to me, very reminiscent of a scene from probably more than half a dozen science fiction movies that I've seen over the years where some 3D printer technology creates a body out of nothing. First, it it stretches out these dry bones and then puts muscles in there and then uh, organs and then wraps skin over it and then there's a there's an electric shock from somewhere and all of a sudden uh, they've created a person from DNA, for example. Or uh, th- And this idea is as old as Frankenstein, the idea that the, these dead parts could be strung together and then some sort of breath of life put into them. But the idea had its origins in this story, in this vision of Ezekiel thousands of years ago. And he sees the vision of dry bones and then he sees muscles spring up inside the, first of all, the dry bones live, uh, rise up and become skeletons and then muscles take shape and then uh, organs and then skin covers them. And then they're still dead bodies. And God says, now stretch forth your hand, the winds will blow through and the breath of life. So wind and breath and spirit are all the same word in Hebrew. And the, and God is saying, I will send, I will put in them the breath of life and then I will breathe new life in them. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we always take the view that this is a, uh, a prophecy of the resurrection, of the physical resurrection. But God tells us, God tells Ezekiel specifically what this vision means. And so this is not, I'm not saying that it's incorrect, the interpretation that we put on it, but it is secondary. The obvious contextual reading of this chapter is, God tells Israel, I'm going, though you think that your nation is dead, you think that my relationship with you is dead, all you're saying is you look at it and you recognize that it would take a miracle for you to, for you to be my people as you once were. And now I, God, am promising you that that is exactly what is going to happen. There will be a miracle, a miracle on the scale of a valley of dry bones rising up and having organs and skin and muscles put back together and then a wind blowing through and, and causing these spirits to be brought or these, these bodies to be brought back to life and then become a great mighty army. That is the scale of the miracle that I'm going to perform on you. So God is, is prophesying of this great Latter-day miracle that he's going to perform and it doesn't have to do necessarily with the resurrection. What it has to do with is that he's going to perform 
this new thing that he talked about in Isaiah, that he talked about in Jeremiah, he's going to change us. He's going to bring about a people. And when when we read, we got to stop reading the, the books of the Old Testament as if they were talking about in, an ancient people that has nothing to do with us. This is our family history. These are the people of our ancestry. These are the tribes that we come from. And God is saying to all of us, he's saying, I'm going to perform this work on you. I'm going to take your stony heart and turn it into a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit in you. You are going to be the people that all the prophets from thousands of years ago could not stop talking about because they were so excited about this wonderful work that I was going to do. This is the work that we're engaged in right now. And it begins by us changing ourselves. Now, we're not alone in this work. God has said he'd walk right beside us. You saw what happened when the Israels are carried away captive into Babylon. The first thing that happens is a new prophet is called to lead the Babylonians right among them. And he sees that rather than remain separated from them, the righteous people that have been carried away, God is willing to leave his temple and he's willing to go into exile with them. He's willing to be a refugee with them. He doesn't uh, ascend into heaven. He walks through their pain with them, and he feels every bit of their pain. That is what is meant by the condescension of God. So we have the love of God with us today, and it is God's condescension. He feels our pain. He walks with us, and he has promised us that he is going to take our stony heart and turn it into a heart of flesh, and he's going to change us, and it's going to be the kind of miracle that prophets have not been able to stop talking about, even though they have the miracle of the exodus To use as an example, they will ignore that before the scale of the miracle that God is working upon our hearts today. So I pray that you and I will let this miracle affect us. We will let it change us. And we will let God turn us into the kind of people that he has promised throughout the scriptures and throughout the history of the people of God that he would do. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints.